Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you've been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself, put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And Ruth said, All that you tell me, I will do. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Let me retell this story for you. It's only four chapters long. It begins by saying, in Bethlehem, there was no Lehem. In the house of bread, there was no bread. So a certain man named Elimelech, who had a wife named Naomi, and they, two sons named Melon and Chilion, moved from Bethlehem across the Jordan River to a territory controlled by a tribe called Moabites. Shortly thereafter, Elimelech died Naomi's two sons took Moabite wives, and though they lived together for more than ten years, there were no children. This family were known as Ephrathites, which means fertility or fruitfulness, and the family of fertility produced no fruit. Naomi had heard that it had started raining again near Bethlehem. There was grain there. And she said to the two daughters-in-law, I'm going home. Go back to your mother's houses. You're young enough. You can start your lives over again. They said they would not leave her. She told them again, there is really nothing for you at Bethlehem. Go home to your mother's and begin your lives again. I have nothing to offer you. I'm old and bitter. The Lord has turned his face from me. Orpah kissed her on the cheek, bid her farewell, and went home. Ruth said, I will not leave you. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And so these two women walked to Bethlehem. Once they got there, the storyteller just puts a little aside here in saying, Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man named Boaz, who was, this says, a prominent rich man, the rabbis translate, who was a man of substance. One morning, Ruth woke up in Bethlehem and said to Naomi, "Uh, we've got to have something to eat. It's barley season. I will walk behind those who are reaping the grain, and any that falls to the ground, I will glean for you and me. And then the story seller, now it just so happened that Ruth ended up gleaning in the field of Boaz. She had worked for hours when Boaz came by, said to those who were working for him, the Lord bless you. 
You and I say, the Lord be with you in response and also with you. That's what the workmen do. Then he said, who does she belong to? Well, she's the Moabite woman who came home with our relative Naomi. She's a hard worker. And Boaz went over to her and said, I've told my men not to bother you, to let you glean. May the Lord bless you. And she fell down on her face before him and said, My Lord, you can bless me. Sort of to that extent. Well, the barley season went on every day, Ruth gleaning more and more grain, picking up after those reapers had gone ahead of her, taking home to Naomi. And when the barley season was over, Naomi said to Ruth, Now I want you to bathe. Sprinkle a little perfume, squirt behind each ear, put on the best dress you've got and go down to the threshing floor. Um, he isn't going to recognize you. You just be quiet and watch. He will eat, then he will drink, then he will lie down to rest. And when everybody's gone to sleep, you pull the cover back from his feet and you lie down there. He'll tell you what to do next. Boaz woke up in the middle of the night and said, My Lord, who is this? And Ruth said, it's okay, it is I, everything is all right. And he said, well, please be quiet till the day comes. And so they lie there quietly. But when it's still dark enough that no one can recognize the other, he says to her, you go home, I'll take care of this. And he went down to the gate of Bethlehem, a small town, a gate in the wall around the city. We know from archaeological evidence that all the old Israelite towns had benches, stone benches usually, just outside the gate. So Boaz convenes a court, if you would. He summons ten elders of the town that he sees going in that morning. Sit with me, please. Sit with me, please. And then when the real next of kin from Naomi's family comes, he calls him, friend, sit down. The rabbis say that's not what he said to him. He said to him, you old so-and-so, sit here. And Dr. Kathleen Farmer says, Boaz said to him, whatever your name is, sit down. Meaning you have not done the right thing for your next of kin, Elimelech, his widow, Naomi. You don't deserve to have your name called. You certainly don't deserve to have it in this story. And you don't deserve to have it in the book, old so-and-so. Now, scholars say that in a village as small as Bethlehem, with all the people living on subsistence, just barely making it from day to day, there's no way Naomi and Elimelech had land that had sat there unused for more than ten years. Somebody had been using that land, and they go on to say, you can be sure it was this fellow, the next of kin, who had claimed it immediately. I'm Elimelech's next of kin. I get to farm his place. And now Boaz is saying, it's time for you to pay up. Naomi's a widow. You need to pay up. And he said, I'm prepared to do that. Now, the word that's used is the word redeem, which literally means buy back. The next of kin was supposed to buy back property for a family member that had been lost in war or simply in poverty or in death. So then Boaz brings it on him and says, well, you realize that when you do the right thing and buy the land, you also get Naomi and the Moabite woman. The man said, I can't go that far. And Boaz says to the ten elders, then I want you to be observers here. You are witnesses. 
I will buy the land and I will care for Naomi and Ruth. And they were married. And it says, And the Lord made Ruth conceive. She had lived with her first husband for more than ten years. There were no babies. And now she's married to a man much older, almost surely the age of Elimelech. And she is given a child by the mercies and grace of God. And the women in the village sort of forget Ruth. They turn to their relative Naomi and say, Naomi, look what's happened. They don't say Boaz has redeemed your life. They say this child has bought back your life. I've underlined four things. Let me say them to you quickly. The first thing you notice in this story is the part about, and it just happened that Ruth gleaned in the field of Boaz. The rabbis translated, as luck would have it, and when the rabbis translate that way, they are saying to you, guess what? God is at work here whether you know it or not. When it just happens to be the right thing for you, when it just happens to be, God is at work here. I've told you in the past that when I was a senior in high school, I felt God was calling me to be a preacher. Now, I just felt that. I didn't hear it with my ears, but deep, deep within my heart, I felt God was calling me to be a preacher. And so one Sunday morning during this closing hymn, about a month before I graduated high school, I went forward and I told my pastor in the little church where I'd grown up, I think God's calling me to be a preacher. He knew my mother and father well, and he knew how desperately they wanted me to be a college graduate, something that they were not. But he also knew my dad didn't make a lot of money. And so he said to me, you know, there are many times we don't have enough preachers with education yet to pastor all of our churches. Uh, how about if I put your name in with the district superintendent and he with the bishop, that you pastor one of these little student churches, they're called, and you could go to college five days a week and you could pastor on the weekend. And I got to thinking about that. This, this could be my ticket. If I could do that, I could see the way to go all the way through at least seven years of college, the Methodist Church required. And I said, I will do it. I will do it. Well, annual conference began. Back in those days, they still made appointments during annual conference. And my pastor kept saying, well, they don't get to the littlest churches till the very last day. Be patient. They don't get to the littlest churches till the last day. And they got to the last day and the littlest churches and the one he had mentioned to me, which was 30 miles west of my hometown. It was 30 miles closer to Dallas and the graduate school than my hometown was given to somebody else. And I was told, there's none for you. So I started to work for a little drilling mud company, loading and unloading 100-pound sacks of drilling mud. And the first week in August, the district superintendent came up in his car and said, uh, we've had a pastor split with his wife. He's dropping out of the ministry. We have nobody else. We're sending you to Mount Zion. And it wasn't 30 miles closer to Dallas. It was 30 miles farther from Dallas. So now I'm 60 miles farther than I could have been. And I thought that I was sort of left with nothing. But I went to pastor those two little churches and stayed six years. It just happened 
it turned out wonderfully well for me. As luck would have it, I met Gail. If I'd gone to Henry's chapel, I never would have met Gail. We've been married 47 years. If I didn't have Gail, I wouldn't have Trey. And if I didn't have Trey and his Allison, I wouldn't have Abigail. Or my Parker, or my Joshua, you see? If I hadn't met Gail, we wouldn't have had our Jason. And if we didn't have Jason, we wouldn't have Jason and Janet and their three precious little girls, our Barrett and Dylan and Chase. Be very careful. Look for those moments when good things just seem to happen to you. It's probably God working for you all the time, working things out just the right way if you're attuned to that. Number two, when Boaz stops to speak to Ruth out there in the field, I think our translation is not so good here. I like the rabbis again better. She said to him, how is it that you notice me, one who never gets noticed? That's what it literally says in Hebrew. How is it that you recognize me, one who never gets recognized? I'm from nowhere. I'm from Moab. How is it that you notice me when no one notices me? Gordon Atkinson is a Baptist preacher down in San Antonio, Texas, and he's recently written uh, about his church being prompted to support a missionary in India, a specific missionary who ministers to the Banhara people who are commonly called gypsies. There are several million of them who've lived in India for centuries and still are some of the poorest on the planet. They have no electricity, no running water. They were told that they could provide full-time support for a missionary for $450 a year. Divide that out. It means a missionary, a Baptist missionary, is living in India among the Banhari people for about $9 a week. $37.50 a month. That a missionary and his family are living among the Banhari on $37.50 a month. There was a little girl in their church named Chloe who heard that story the Sunday it was told. She was only five. The next Sunday morning, Gordon says when he was asking, are there any prayer concerns? And somebody said, I'd love you to pray for my grandmother. And somebody said, I'd love you to pray for my father. They heard this tiny little voice say, the gypsies. And so they prayed for the gypsies. And the next Sunday morning, they asked for prayers and several raised concerns. And they heard this little tiny voice say, the gypsies. And the next Sunday, they just expected after several other prayer requests, the gypsies. Little Chloe said it every Sunday, week after week. The gypsies, the gypsies, the gypsies. Four years later, the congregation decided to fly a member of the Banhari people all the way from India to San Antonio so the congregation could see one member of this, this populace whom they were taking the good news of Jesus Christ. Little Chloe got to meet this woman. So now she decided, being nine years old now, we could do 
$37.50 a month, we could do another $37.50 a month, another $37.50 a month. And this woman, the Banharis, gave her a purse that the women had made. And little Chloe would say, the gypsies. And people would pray. And she's standing at the door with the purse waiting for the money. The money. The money. God is pleased when we notice those whom nobody else seems to notice. Number three. When Boaz says to Ruth, may the Lord bless you. She falls down and says, my Lord. Dr. Kathleen Farmer says what she's really saying to him is, why don't you put up or shut up, Boaz? Um, If you want the Lord to look after me, how about you're looking after me? Maybe you're the one God has sent to take care of this. Again, I've had many times in my life when I felt that somebody who said they were wishing me well could have done a lot more for me, I for them. Our beloved friend, Bishop Paul Galloway, uh, had a door open for me many years ago through Rotary. I've had a lot of doors open for me through Rotary. I I was invited to speak at a big Rotary conference in New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, a few weeks after I spoke there, I got a call from a superintendent of schools in Stuttgart, Arkansas, asking me if I would come to Arkansas the next spring and speak to all the Rotarians of the state of Arkansas at a convention center in Hot Springs. And before I could say yes or no, he said, oh, by the way, I've called my bishop and asked him if he would meet you at the airport in Little Rock, drive you to Hot Springs, introduce you to the convention, and drive you back to the airport. And I said, bishops don't meet my plane. Bishops don't drive me to convention centers. Bishops don't sit around and wait to introduce me and then drive me back to airports. He said, my bishop said he would. So I agreed to do that. I didn't know how this bishop was going to look when I got off the plane in Little Rock if this superintendent of schools had pressed him into doing this. But Bishop Paul Galloway was absolutely wonderful, of course. I got in his car with him. He drove me all the way to Hot Springs, talking all the way. He got up to introduce me. He had never met me in his life and told these people that I was the most outstanding young Methodist preacher in America. And so I did the best I could. And on the way back to the airport, just before we got there, he said, now, how long have you been an associate? And I said, nine years. He said, well, you tell your bishop it's time for him to bow his neck and put you in a top church. You understand? I said, yes, sir, I understand. But, of course, I wasn't going to tell my bishop anything to do. (laughs) So I flew home to Houston, and a few months later, we had a tragedy. Our bishop had a sudden, massive heart attack and died. There were several retired bishops across the church who could have been called out of retirement to finish up that four years before another election would be held. And the luck of it was, by the way, it just so happened they chose Paul Galloway. And when Gail and I went to the reception honoring him and Elizabeth, we were moving down the receiving line. We got right to the bishop. And when he saw me, I could tell that he knew I've seen this person before. I'm not sure where. And I said, Bishop, you and I had a day with Rotary. Oh, of course, of course. I said, you remember what you said to me just as I was getting out of the car? And <laughs> said he didn't remember. 
And so I reminded him what he had said, and I said, I believe the Lord has sent you here to take care of that. And he said, no, no, no. But you know what? I got a call three months later. He was appointing me to a church in Beaumont, Texas. And when I thanked him, he said, there are 12 district superintendents. Eleven of them voted against you because they believe you're too young for this big responsibility. But I have bowed my neck and sent you to Beaumont. Now, I expect you to show them I know what I'm doing. And if you do it well for seven or eight years, you could end up at Boston Avenue, Tulsa. It just so happened that all that came to pass. Number four, the women say to Naomi, this grandbaby of yours has restored your life. Life is one translation of the word nephesh, but there's another translation. That's Psalm 23, verse 3, a psalm the Jews know better than we do. And that third verse after the first two, remember, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Restores my soul. Obed will restore your soul. He will be your Redeemer. And Obed grew up and had a son named Jesse. And Jesse grew up and had a son named David. And David grew up and had a son named Solomon. And a thousand years later, Mary had a son related to this same family. And his name was Jesus. And you and I believe with all of our hearts, He restores our soul. Amen.